0: Welcome back to AD seventy nine Year of Vesuvius, Episode 11, Bread and Money. We left off last time by taking a quick peek at the grain warehouses, now by March beginning to look a little down at Heel. Not an encouraging sight, since, for the living, it all came down to bread. Also wine and olive oil, but mostly to bread or, rather, grain with which to make bread, but essentially to bread. Rome had changed since 509 BC. By the late Republican era, large landholders had displaced the self-supporting yeoman farmers and preferred high-return cash crops and vineyards to grain. The city of Rome is famously the first metropolis to break the million-mouth mark, all of whom it needed to be fed. There is little choice but to import grain from overseas. Sardinia, Sicily, North Africa, and most of all Egypt, where the Nile made possible the production of grain on a scale impossible in the Tiber Valley. How did it work? The process begins with money. Maritime trade had a long history in the Mediterranean, well before the Romans got their feet wet. Greeks and Levantines, when not making war, had been shifting trade goods for centuries and had worked out systems of managing the risk of a highly risky business. Rome itself had no shortage of money looking for investment. Aulus Julius, writing in the second century AD, notes sadly that commercial real estate would be an excellent investment if only buildings didn't burn down so often. The senatorial class required a million sesterces to join. The snag was that senators, by law, were prevented from engaging in trade. More specifically, as of 218 BC, senators were forbidden to own ships, maritimam navem, for commercial gain. Or rather, they were allowed, but only up to a capacity of three hundred amphorae enough for personal use. Senators were rich by definition and had their own households to feed. Of course, as senators set the law, workarounds were found. To be fair, this was, after all, a question of whether the city as a whole survived or died, and what kind of arrangements capital and entrepreneurs could come to. Blue Dark explains how Cato the Elder did it. He required his borrowers to form a large company, and when there were fifty partners and as many ships for his security, he took one share in the company himself, and was represented by Quintio, a freedman of his, who accompanied his clients in all their ventures. In this way his entire security was not imperiled, but only a small part of it, and his profits were large. Of ways to make money on loans, this was, says Plutarch, the most disreputable of all. Why so? Most loans had an interest cap at 12%. A handsome return, but people are greedy. Maritime loans played to that greed, and given that food was a matter of life and death, Roman lawmakers were willing to be flexible. If a lender took the entire risk of a given voyage on himself, cost of goods, ship insurance, triacticia pecunia, he could charge whatever the market would bear. On the other hand, if a ship sank, the loan was forgiven. The system seems to have worked for them and for several hundred years. Of course, Plutarch's outrage may have been at the notion of a man of Cato's rank having anything to do directly with business at all. Romans were snobbish about the origins of their wealth, and commerce was so far down the list that, technically, the senatorial class was barred from participating, a technicality overlooked in the doing, as we have seen. If the patrician class could not deal in trade, who then? Negotiatoris, mercatoris, and naviculari go-betweens, merchants, and sailors. Generally freedmen and foreigners, the sort of men from whom anything could be expected. If, in fact, they fronted for senators, well, what can one say? Profits like that were just too much to be ignored. We have any number of dedications and monuments attesting to their financial achievements. Better than that, however, we have Trimalchio the ex-slave featured in Petronius's Satyricon, who gives us an idea of what a successful entrepreneur could hope for. Riding in the back of a small inheritance, he informs us, I built five ships loaded up with wine. It was worth its weight in gold just then, and sent them off to Rome. You might have supposed I had ordered it so. If you'll believe me, every one of the ships foundered, and that's a fact and one day Neptune swallowed me up thirty millions. Do you imagine I gave in? Not I, by my faith. The loss only whetted my appetite, as if it were a mere nothing. I built more ships, bigger and better found and luckier, till everyone allowed I was a well-plucked one. Nothing venture, nothing win, you know. And a big ship's a big venture. I loaded up again with wine, bacon, beans, perfumery, and slaves. Fortunata was a real good wife to me that time. She sold all her jewelry and all her clothes and laid a hundred gold pieces in my hand, and it proved the leaven of my little property, a thing soon done when the gods will it. One voyage I cleared around ten million. So your humble servant, who was a toad once upon a time, is a king now. Adjusting for satiric intent, and considering what we know about later plutocrats, The portrait does not strain credulity. On harder evidence, we have the tomb of Flavius Zoixus, merchant of Hierapolis, whose epitaph boasts of his 72 trips round Cape Malaya to Italy. Numerous scholars have worked out the figures, minimum amounts of grain brought in every year, the yield being 237,000 metric tons of wheat per annum, more counting in loss and spoilage, 18,000 tons of olive oil and wine, creating a minimum of 1,692 shiploads per year. Bear in mind that the sailing season lasted from April to September, so an average of 17 ships per day in season. So, with financing in place, ships in place, the process begins. Agents in, say, Alexandria, make the best deal they can from farmers and arrange for transport to the grain fleet. If anyone should worry about fraud, there were safeguards. A discarded receipt in Egypt from A.D. 211 describes a master of eight boats and terms of sold wheat, swearing that it is unadulterated and with no admixture of earth or barley untrodden and sifted. The form was originally in triplicate. We also read of samples of grain sealed in leather pouches or small pots, confirming the uniform quality of what was promised with what was delivered. A physical example survives attached to a small jar of red clay, some 14 centimeters high, 17 centimeters in diameter, along with a tag that reads, this is a sample of the cargo for which he has taken consignment from the harvest of the twenty-eighth year of Augustus's reign. We have loaded the cargo from the second of Hathir to the fourth of the same month, and we have affixed on this jar both our respective seals, that of Ammonius, which features a figure of Ammon, and that of Hermias, which features a figure of Hippocrates, year twenty-nine of Augustus. Details to notice. The ship took two days to load, and the men who guaranteed the cargo used seals of Egyptian gods. The text is in Greek. We are, again, talking international trade. The ships were privately held, though the emperor could requisition them in time of war. For normal trips, the ships also carried soldiers, frumentarii, to make sure that the army's interests were kept paramount. When St. Paul traveled to Rome in 860, he came as a civilian passenger on a grain ship, along with 276 fellow passengers. Their crossing was unusually rough, and he mentions the centurions who stopped the crew from jumping ship once the weather turned bad. Simply to keep the boat afloat, the passengers jettisoned the chief cargo of grain. More work for lawyers. The ships sailed in convoys. The voyage from Alexandria to Ostia, and later Portus, at the mouth of the Tiber, generally took three weeks, and the ships were not small. Lucian of Samosatos, AD 120 to whenever, describes a naus, a grain ship from the Alexandria fleet that had blown off course, and it caused so much excitement on the docks that the author considered the five-mile trek from Athens to Piraeus well worth his time just to see it. A hundred and eighty feet long, the man said, and something over a quarter of that in width, and from deck to keel, the maximum depth, through the hold, forty-four feet. Lionel Casson estimates her cargo capacity at anywhere between 1,200 to 1,300 tons burden. Lucian claims that the ship would carry enough grain to feed Attica for a year, but Lucian likes to exaggerate. In comparison, the Sea Witch, a state-of-the-art extreme clipper ship dating from 1846, was 179 feet long and 33 feet beam with a cargo capacity of just over 400 tons of burden. Granted, clipper ships were designed primarily for speed, but the comparison is nonetheless striking. Even to the jaded Italians, the arrival of the green ship was something of an event. Seneca describes the scene. Suddenly there came into our view the Alexandrian ships. I mean those which are usually sent ahead to announce the coming of the fleet they are called mail boats. The companions are glad to see them. All the rabble of Puteole stand on the docks and can recognize the Alexandrian boats, no matter how great the crowd of vessels by the very trim of their sails. Puteoli is nice, but it isn't Rome. It's not even close to Rome. The mouth of the Tiber, however, has no natural harbor and is given to sandbars. The runoff from the river itself. Large ships carrying grain to Rome waded offshore, while flat-bottomed lighters came out to offload cargo and bring it to land. This was not efficient, not for the number of people waiting upriver to be fed. It took the famine year of forty to forty-one for the then-Emperor Claudius to take the hint. His officials informed him that there was grain enough for perhaps one week, and after that, nothing. The problem was presumably saved by a late arrival of food, but the offloading must have been agonizingly slow. The close call was enough to goad Claudius into action on making Rome a proper port. He ordered a protected area built, two large moles, breakwaters, to reach out into the ocean and provide safe harbor for the grain fleet. A century later, Trajan expanded this enterprise by building the sexagonal harbor of Portus. You can see the outlines of it if you fly into Fiumicino Airport. Busy? Juvenal says so. Look at our ports, our seas, crowded with big ships. The men at sea now outnumber those on shore. Whithersoever hope of gain shall call, thither fleets will come. Again, adjusting for Juvenal's being a satirist, there must have been some truth, or the joke would not have worked. The ship's arrival was as complicated then as now. The harbor master assigned an incoming ship an empty berth. Officials and merchants came aboard to break the seal on the sample container, confirm the goods in the hold were consistent with the goods in the container, and tally the amounts. All required signatures were given and received, after which guild members stepped in, their tasks specific and not to be infringed upon by outsiders. Sakarii, stevedores who hefted sacks of grain, not to be confused with Falagarii, who carried amphorae filled with wine or oil, or Saburarii, who arranged sand used for ballast. General dock workers, Geruli, not to overstep the prerogatives of Horiarii, warehouse workers, which warehouses were guarded by custodiarii, who may have kept a sharp eye on mensoris frumentarii, who kept a track of goods leaving the river and entering the warehouse, and vice versa. None of these men would have jobs at all without the fabri navales, who built the ships in the first place. Each one of these was vital if goods were to get to carts and then to warehouses and directly to Navis Akotekaria on the Tiber that would take them river to the city for storage and distribution. A short mast in front to take advantage of what offshore wind there might be, and, when the winds failed, to secure tow-ropes for the oxen, or perhaps men, as Volga boatmen, for passage up river. all involved. Stevedores, measurers, small boat and barge men were members of their specialized guilds that had a vested interest in keeping all transactions honest, if not necessarily cheap. A brief letter from a crew member of Alexandria to his brother in Alexandria gives an indication. I reached land, Portus or Ostia, on the sixth day of the month of Epa. June 3rd, and we finished unloading on the 18th of the same month, July 12th. I went up to Rome on the 25th of the same month, July 19th, and the place received us as the God willed. We are daily expecting our discharge, so that up to today nobody in the grain fleet has been able to leave. The letter is dated August 2nd, at some time in the second or third century. What on earth was the hold-up? Bureaucracy of some kind, we can assume, or a disinclination to sail outside of a convoy? The Vatican Museum has a third-century wall painting from Ostia showing us the loading of the good ship Isis Geminiana. At the stern is Pharnikis, shipmaker, who idles as a pair of stevedores tote bags of grain from the dock, while a man named Eraskontus keeps a sharp eye on the progress, and that of a third man who dumps grain into a modius, a barrel of known volume. A third man with a tally stick watches their progress, as does a man seated at the bow next to a speech balloon, on which is written the caption, Faeci, I'm done. A very cosmopolitan affair, Isis Geminiana suggests an Egyptian flag for the ship. Pharnikas takes his name from the 1st century BC king of Pontus, modern Turkey. The number of craft heading up and down the Tiber at peak shift would have been considerable, and there were inevitably accidents. In 1862, we read of 100 vessels heading up the Tiber catching fire and burning, this on top of 200 in harbor sunk by a passing storm. There are no details, but presumably one blazing ship was abandoned, floated downriver, struck and ignited a second ship, and set off a chain reaction down the line. Where the fire broke out, and how many ships were upriver of it, and whether they escaped, we are not told. Having crossed the Mediterranean and been offloaded, some grain remained in warehouses at Ostia and Portus for later distribution, the rest had taken upriver to Rome. Procopius gives us a written record of the oxen yoked by the side of the river that dragged the barges against the current, adding that the straight stretches could exploit sail power. The trade was enough to support 258 members, if the guild inscription is to be believed, and like cabbies outside of railway stations, there were generally some ready and waiting for business. The journey took three days and nights, with all traffic stopping after sundown. Maneuvering oxen and boats around tight corners by lamplight would have been more than even the most grasping entrepreneur would have wanted to tackle. We will assume that buffalo and oxen were used. There is, however, a bas-relief in Arles that shows a boat carrying barrels being towed by two men. If, as seems likely, the water is their own, they were pulling against the strongest river in France. Once arrived at the wharves of Rome, the cargo would fall under the purview of a new set of stevedores and officials. The area between the river and the foot of the Aventine Hill held the major grain warehouses, the Horea, from where the goods could be distributed over the quieter winter months. The grain was precious stuff, and the Horea were built like blockhouses, not simply to keep out heat and water and rodents, but also to prevent theft. And to guard against flooding, of course. They were notably massive, their floors not open, dirt, but raised and paved with stone, their walls thick, their windows high. Keeping them in order was a job sufficiently responsible that Seneca, comforting a friend facing a recent professional setback, reminds him that it could be worse, that in times of shortage, like that after Caligula died, he at least does not have to be the one tasked with ensuring that corn from overseas poured into the granaries, unhurt either by the dishonesty or the neglect of those who transport it, in seeing that it does not become heated and spoiled by collecting moisture and tallies in weight and measure. Which gets us to the next question. We've covered the gathering and transshipment of the grain. What about the final distribution? In particular, the Anona, the dole, the imperial social welfare, Roman food stamps, call it what you like. It is what the poet Juvenal was referring to around this time in his tenth satire, reflecting on the many Roman citizens who had, over time, lost the robust independence of their early Republican, small r, ancestors for the situation they now enjoyed. Long ago, when they lost their votes and the bribes, the mob that used to grant power, high office, the legions, everything, curtails its desires and reveals its anxiety for two things only, bread and circuses. There are misconceptions about the bread part of bread and circuses, and this is as good a place as any to clear them up. For starters, the dole was not universal. A specific group of adult male citizens were eligible. They could sell the perquisite or pass it on to their children. And for some, the dole was a mark of distinction. You will see it on grave markers where the deceased may have had nothing else noteworthy in his life. But at least he wasn't a no-account non-citizen unqualified to receive free food. The amount of grain, and it was grain, you had to find your own baker, was not enough to feed a family, or really the recipient. And, of course, the dole began modestly and with the best of intentions. Livy refers to the famine year of 440 B.C., when many of the poorer people, their last hope gone, covered their heads and drowned themselves in the Tiber to escape the anguish of prolonging their miserable lives. Desperate measures were called for. The narrative continues with the arrival of one spurious Aemilius, a rich plebeian who bought up all available wheat and distributed it at cost. His social betters thought he was pandering and aiming at dictatorship, and so had him murdered. The grain was distributed and the laws written to prevent it from ever happening again. The idea was revived under Gaius Gracchus, younger of the Gracchi brothers. Part of Rome's tax revenue came in the form of grain, which corrupt officials sold on the open market, skimming a bit off the top. Gracchus changed all that. He cut out the midland and sold directly to the people at a fraction of market value. The idea did not go over well with traditionalists who pointed to Spirius Melius. Lucius Calpurnius Piso, called Frugi for his care for money, argued against the law, but, once it was passed, could be found in line waiting for his share. Confronted with this paradox, he said, I, Gracchus, would not want you to have the idea of dividing my possessions amongst everyone, but if you did it, I would like to have my share. Sallust, 86-35 to 35 B.C among others, argued that free grain discouraged labor and that qualifying farm workers migrated to the city to live a life of ease, if not plenty. Eventually, Gracchus and his followers were crushed, their bodies, at least 3,000, thrown into the Tiber. The precedent, however, had been set. In 59 B.C., Julius Caesar threatened to make a grain free. In 58 BC, Publius Clodius Pulcher, with the Lex Collodia Frumentaria, actually did so, specifically for the poor. The cost was staggering—a fifth of the state revenues. But once the scheme was rolling, it was hard to stop. Caesar himself, on taking power, was only able to cut the rolls from 320,000 to 150,000. Augustus, grabbing the throne after Caesar's assassination and more civil war, did not risk eliminating the practice. Indeed, he initially raised the number of eligible, then lowered it to 200,000, mostly subsidized in part, but on special occasions underwritten entirely. He considered offering half-price grain, but decided that half-measures would only encourage some even more manipulative politician, threatening his own position. Instead, he granted free grain for perhaps 150,000 citizens. No later, Emperor dared repeal the subsidies. Indeed, Trajan added wine, Septimius Severus added olive oil, Aurelian added pork, and also took over the bother of baking bread. By the 3rd century AD, the Annona was open to all Roman citizens. When the empire's capital moved to Constantinople, responsibility for the dole went to the Senate, and a little later to the Church. Both did their best in the face of little money and invading barbarians. When Justinian took Italy back in AD 550, He promised to keep the Anona as well as maintenance for the Tiber and the ports. Whether he was able to do so may be doubted. In the end, there was no free lunch. And from the beginning, it was all very political. And accordingly, politics, or rather elections, will form the subject of our next episode. March was the campaign and voting season, and the Romans were no less competitive on that side of things as any other political nation. Until then, thank you for listening. And if you are still listening, another friendly reminder that broadcasts are free for listening, but not for the creating. If you find them interesting or diverting, and have some surplus to spare, various options exist for funneling money this way, Anything at all is gratefully received. So also, any questions or requests for future episodes, we've still got nine months to get through, plenty of time to add to the odd investigation. Again, thank you for listening.